Sir Linda. I mean, you were in the Air Force, for goodness sakes. I mean, what do you think about this toxic masculine Christian virtue? I mean, uh, Okay, I am wearing pink today because when I read this book, I go, oh my God, I am a man. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I have the pleasure to present to you today a special Stand Firm mashup event. Today, we're starting a series on Stand Firm, a series of indeterminate length, discussing the very popular book and a book growing in popularity, even in those, quote, evangelical circles, Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobus Dumay. Today's participants in our conversation are Ann Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and Rolinda Greger of my own parish, Grace Anglican in Louisville. So let's get right to their conversation, Jesus and John Wayne. Here's Ann. I'm at a, a little bit of a disadvantage because I did not grow up in the United States I came really to the U.S. in the in the mid to late 90s. I did not um, ever self-identify as an evangelical. I went to a conservative Baptist boarding school, but I always self-identified as Anglican. I was baptized in the Diocese of Oxford, for heaven's sake. And um, I don't, um, I have always felt like an outsider when I could try to understand the American religious landscape. I just... I get, I, I think I have some good perspective because I was on the, you know, on the mission fields. I saw the conservative Baptist world, the Christian Missionary Alliance. I roomed with four Southern Baptist, sorry, three Southern Baptist girls for a year of high school who were so rich, they were able to go back to the States every summer and buy trunks and trunks of clothes, bring them to Africa. And then they were just so hip. And I was this awful <laughs> outcast Anglican who nobody believed could ever know God because obviously Anglicans are like of the devil. So I, I feel like I have a, a very mixed view of what the American religious landscape looks like. And I wasn't really interested in reading the book because I don't, though I know Jesus, I do not, in fact, know John Wayne. I, I think I've seen one John Wayne movie. I don't know what, when you say John Wayne, I don't know the fullness of what that entails. And that was my sense as I went through the whole book. She was naming person after person and I would have some idea of what that person might represent or who that might be. But I, all the way from the 1960s through the mid nineties, I don't know. And even in the early 2000s, like I never read Wild at Heart. My first grasp of being able to kind of understand what she was saying was when she made, named Doug Wilson. And then I was like, oh, okay, now I can maybe get my bearings. But we're gonna go hopefully chapter by chapter so we yeah. can talk about every single one of these people if we want to. But uh, I think we should start by trying to say what her definite two definitions, what does she think evangelicalism is because she says that and why um how is it that evangelicals love trump so much that's her thesis and i think right. we should start there and then go through the first chapter yeah that's a good place and I, I should say um it's probably for the benefit of this conversation like i um am totally implicated throughout the entire book i mean i'm not as old as some of the 
uh, people that she speaks about, but I know in some cases personally, uh, many of the people that she, um, about whom she speaks and have participated in almost all of the quote unquote, hyper-masculine, white, evangelical, racist, misogynist, um, Christian, quote unquote, Christian things that she's talking about. Promise Keepers, Wild at Heart, John Eldridge. Uh, you kiss dating goodbye. I read the book. Um, I I considered it. <laughs> I considered it. I um, uh, and I certainly know people that did. And I was very aware of the silver ring thing and purity culture and Ron Luce and acquire the fire. All these things. All these things about which she speaks. And um, I guess one of my just I should just get it off my chest. One of my fundamental critiques of the book, which someone else referenced in a uh, I think mere orthodoxy blog, was that it reads it reads purportedly from someone who's part of the family the body of christ it reads as, as someone who is decidedly um antagonistic would be would be a, a polite way of saying the way that she speaks about some of these people and it was hard to read I, i've read i've read more gracious accounts of people's failings from diehard atheists um than i have this book and i think that if there as i've said in other places if and i i would say there are some actual um places of interesting um, blind spots and uh, places where uh, human frailty has met with power and the blindness of sin has resulted in, in some harm. There's, there's no question about that. No one needs to deny that. But um, if the idea was this was going to somehow be a constructive argument, well, then that was, that was the book is a failure. Um, if it was the intent was to sort of take a bruise and push and push and push on it, well, then um, it was a huge success. And so this, the, the, the problem I have with the movement, as it were, is that it's not a constructive movement. It's not a loving movement. And it's not even a, I would argue, in many ways, a Christian movement. It's a um, sort of a celebratory you know, salting the earth, dancing on the uh, the ashes of uh, our fallen and slain victors. Uh, I mean, um, uh, victims, or, or our former persecutors. And you know, there may be a place for that, but the fact that it is being um, lauded and celebrated among uh, pastors um, who are even parts of this quote unquote evangelical movement is uh, rather distressing because it, it there is a place for lament, you know, and there's a place for real soul searching. I mean, as I have mentioned in other parts of the podcast, I mean, I grew up in Baton Rouge. Like I was, we are all like anyone that was a Christian in the, I guess it was the late eighties, early nineties um, in Baton Rouge is, is painfully aware, painfully aware of what uh, the sort of the fall of Jimmy Swaggart, you know, which she talks about. And, and, and I say painfully because it was a scar that wounded the entire body. You know, I wasn't, we didn't go to his church. Like we actually, when my, when I was first born, it was, he had a like basically free cafeteria at his church. And so it was like an outreach thing for, for people to come. And so my parents and I, remember finally the mashed potato uh mashed potatoes on the buffet line at the you know whatever jimmy swaggart's uh lunch table was but we never went to the church and i didn't know anything about him we listened to his music because on the radio but when he fell it was a great wound and a and a and of course a lot of soul searching and a lot of um sort of cautionary tales uh, to this day remain but but that's the point is that it was a painful thing for the body not a celebratory thing and certainly not something to to um to sort of glory in and this this reading this book it's it's impossible to come away i mean if if you had no idea what christianity was you would come away saying well i don't know what christianity is but that the person that wrote this book obviously hates it 
you know, or, 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 or doesn't have any care or concern for these people. Um, whoever these white people are, whoever these evangelicals are, they're obviously our enemies because this book does a really good job of, of painting them as such. And it's really hard to read as a result. But so, so cultural and not theological. And she criticizes some things. And then you say, well, wait, that's in the Bible. Have you read it? You know, talking about the difference between liberal and fundamentalist focus, she said the fundamentalists focus on personal sin and conversion. And so is there something wrong with that? Because there's certainly a lot of that in the Bible. <laughs> well, when we should you... go through, I'm sorry, we should go back to um, Anne's fundamental um sort of your two points, I think, before we jump in, because there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much to go on to, but. So she, she, she redefined evangelical according to, away from the quote quadrilateral that I apparently has defined American evangelicals through the last century, which I have read a little bit about, but I, you know, as an Anglican, I never encountered that in a real way. Um, that's, that's the Bevington quadrilateral. Yeah. The, the, the four parts of what it is. And um, it's interesting that Tabidi uh, came out last week and said he's not, he believes in the quadrilateral, but he's not an evangelical anymore. I thought that was interesting. He's distancing himself from it as well. But she totally redefined that to be a consumer. You know, she, she had an aha moment she she read about she knew that evangelicals thought that about themselves but as she was doing her research she discovered in an aha way that in fact that's not what defines an evangelical um and she has it in the first bit the first introduction she says that evangelicalism is actually a cultural phenomenon largely defined by its consumerist tendencies well, yeah, I mean, she says even in the beginning in the introduction that it was um, that in support of Trump, that it was a culmination of the ideology of evangelicalism, which was, quote, an embrace of militant masculinity and an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. So there's a militarism and a consumerism. She, she, yes, consumerism and a milita militarism and a patriarchalism, essentially, is what she's sort of conflating, um, which is why, you know, the, the strong man as it were, you know, Nietzsche's Ubermensch would be the um, the sort of evangelical go-to, which is then ergo why Donald Trump was such an easy um, sell, or he was able to to hoodwink all of these benighted and foolish and um, easily led astray evangelical sheep. That's what the argument is. And so, I, you know, I mean, it, it's it's difficult to... It's part of the problem with the discussion about this book and Denny Burke, our friend Denny Burke is um, running into this is that it's difficult to, to even know where to begin when the, the premise is so flawed, or, or if you're just simply arguing with the premise, well, how do you, how do you begin to deconstruct the argument when the, when the foundation is resting, you would argue upon a faulty premise. And so that's been part of the difficulty is that there's a lot of true things said in this book. I mean, no one is arguing any of these facts. I mean, James, the Baker PTL scandal, I mean, I have a whole book on that. You can read it. It's called PTL, you know, praise the Lord about Jim and Tammy Faye. And it reads, it's, it's horrifying to read. And it's, it's 
it's heartbreaking and it's but it's it's a good read and it's a fast read and it doesn't purport to argue that this is somehow a normal case for the you know, american christianity it was that this man and this woman you know got um seduced by the sin death and the devil um and are the lusts of the flesh the eyes and the pride of life and this should be a caution to you you know and as a pastor i read that book and said well you know i'm not in any danger of getting a jet anytime soon but if i do i should probably consider you know some of the decisions i made up until then because jim baker is a cautionary tale but so this is the problem though is that we're i mean even in the title you know how white evangelicals corrupted uh, faith and fractured a nation. I mean, you could just begin to deconstruct each of these these uh, statements. And, and unless you, as it were, buy into the entire, what they would say, the narrative framework uh, of of her argument, well, then it it's 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 maddening. It's maddening because, you know, first of all, you have to understand, like you said, what an evangelical is, and you have to agree that what she's defining as such are actually uh, rightly defined, which is a, a total argument. I mean, not only is David Bevington been arguing for Quadrilateral, I mean, John Stott has a book on what defines evangelical, like evangelical has been a term that has, it's very elastic, and it, uh, in broad uh, brush, it's often just simply used as a pejorative over a against, uh, you know, people that you don't agree with, you know, like those evangelicals, you know, at least in our circles, in which historically evangelical simply was taken directly from the Greek, euangelion, which simply means the good news. I mean, that was what an evangelical was, a gospeler, you know, it's what Luther, I mean, it's still the evangelische Kirche in Germany, it's what it's named for. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying, who are you talking about when you say evangelical? And then they say white evangelicals, well, then it even gets further to a subset where you're saying, well, you know, are you talking about the, um, what about the Catholics for Trump? You know, what about, what about um, other people who, who share some of this quote unquote evangelical ethos who aren't necessarily, you know, again, quote unquote white. I mean, how are you defining this? Is it, is it, you know, what percentage, what, what, uh, what particular ethnicity? And, and you get to this, this, this problem, which I still can't get past, which is that there's such a uncharitable and cynical premise that the whole book rests upon that to find it um, helpful is anything other than a, an exercise in how your enemies talk about you <laughs> is, is really hard to, hard to, to do. Show me a book that reads um, the history of people that you may have at least had some affection for like John Eldridge, you know, and the Wild at Heart movement, uh, with the least possible charity and grace you could find, like, and to be like, you know, what, Alex, I'll take that for 300, like uncharitable tabloid screeds posing as academic literature, Alex, for 400. Well, I'd, I'd like, uh, as I read through this, I, I kept thinking, because three years ago or something, I, I listened to a book called Moral Combat, I can't remember who it's by. It's not a Christian, but it's um, the cultural wars beginning in the early 1900s or late 1890s, all the way through until I think Bill Clinton. And it was a it was a tough book to read because it was um, an, an academic and a person who does not Christian at all. But it's really fair. It it provides the context that is utterly missing from this work throughout, you know, um, I, 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 almost every line, I kept thinking, well, what about this other thing that you didn't mention? So for instance, she mentions in the, in the introduction that Jen Hatmaker was dropped by Lifeway 
after her rethink over homosexuality as if that's just an isolated event it's not something that absolutely rocked the world the christian world at that point as if lifeway dropping jen hatmaker wasn't a really interesting i mean basically at the time they functioned they provided a, an episcopal function that's right lifeway um and but you know, so every well, yeah, name... the imprint, the imprint implied um, it, it wasn't like, you know, these my likes don't imply um, agreement or whatever on Twitter, like the actual imprint was sort of a safe place for theological, you know, they had been theologically vetted. And so right. that's, that's, what they're, so they, that's what they were doing. In each case, she just drops a name into the discussion or a situation without actually working out its context. So um, one thing that evangelicals through the century were, were really thinking about or, or coping with maybe without thinking enough was feminism. Yes. Um, and none of that discussion <clears throat> makes its way into the book. Like we're not, <clears throat> you know, it's just that Tammy and what a Jim Baker were horrible. There's nothing about Hugh Hefner, for example. Right. You know that, uh introduction i kept looking at the footnotes going okay where'd she get this because it just seemed like a, a broad assertion it seemed like she would just say these things and it didn't seem to have you know any basis in facts and i kept looking you know clicking on every footnote that's the wonders of a kindle you know, trying to find out what was the source and why was she, you know, you can get a pollster depending on how they frame the question to give you any result you want. And I, I kept looking at the sources to say, well, where'd she get this? Because it was obviously someone with an ax to grind. You know, how were these questions um, framed? Because the nuance really will change the answer. Well, here's here's one of the big problems too that people are talking about online is that they'll they'll give you that. Like I actually got into a small Twitter discussion. I thought it was amicable, uh, but nevertheless, it was clarifying about uh, the fact that that a lot of the arguments were were just that they were un undeveloped or you know not very well documented or not um particularly um uh sort of cogent really and they said well yes you know there is a lot of that in the book but but overall the point that it's making is important so we need to look past yes, all I of these and i said that that's that made me it was maddening i was like that's that so we can't actually dig into the specifics of each particular case because they're not just monolithic and it's not fair to lump all of these people in together as you know there, there's a there's a world of difference between John Eldridge and his and promise keepers and the um, bakers and PTL and you know some of the, um, the the Ted Haggarts of the world like those are those they all broadly fit into the same category of human males who were preaching about Jesus, but like to get even, to get much deeper in that, you really are making a stretch. And so the argument is, again, that's why I keep coming back to it. Like, I don't know how to, how to, or whether one should take any of the assertions with that much seriousness as a whole, 
when the things that are uniting them are so specious. That's, that's my argument, because I think individually, there's a lot to be learned in each individual case. And, and of course, that's just what a book does. I mean, she has a thesis and, you know, I think the thesis is flawed and doesn't hold up, but, you know, obviously many people do. And, um, and it fits the narrative of many people's sort of triumphant bonfire of the vanities that's going on right now. And, um, and so that's why it's taking off, I think. Well, I think it would be really interesting then to go to pay to chapter one, because just in the first paragraph of chapter one, I thought she made kind of a very, I, you know, one thing I would like to do is sort of, I don't know, not correct the record, but re yeah. to tell a totally different narrative. So this, let me just read this section, because I thought this was really <laughs> telling and very reductive. So by the early 20th century, Christians recognized that they had a masculinity problem. That's yeah. Like let's just stop books. right there. Can we just stop yeah. right there? Books have been written about that. So there's something called yeah. I mean, this is by the the fact that it just says Christians like the world understood they had a masculinity problem. Like if you actually were a faithful academic at this point, that that once the, after the industrial revolution, I mean, wasn't just. Christians, although Christians had a part of it, it was because women didn't need to use their strength to do anything anymore because they had the steam engine. Well, then they just started drinking. That's what happened, like across the world. Like feral men, when after the Industrial Revolution, that was a huge problem. Like it was, and it wasn't just a quote unquote Christian problem, although many Western civilizations would consider themselves Christian. So you had, for instance, Friedrich Ludwig Jahn in Berlin, who uh, recognized this in the late 19th century and started what we now understand is the modern gymnastics movement because they were like men are no longer like doing anything so they're just drinking and eating you know in a german diet was um contributing to uh you know obesity and heart disease when you didn't go out you know or, or a full english breakfast you know these things yeah so i mean again i should stop okay. talking because and every and single throw, sentence does this to me throw into that that right at this same time the early 20th century the contraception debate that's right roiled our denomination because the Anglican Lambeth decided that it was okay to do that, which was really divisive and a fascinating thing to do. And the, the outfall of that, I think we're, we have now, I mean, you don't have to, the government is now prepared to pay lots and lots of money for people to have children because there's no reason to, um, in a personal way. So, there should have been a whole chapter right here under this Christians recognized they had a masculinity problem. Christian, you're right. Christians didn't have a masculinity problem. The world had a big problem of how people were supposed to sort out their lives and how should they think of themselves at all. And I think, you know, she references Teddy Roosevelt here, but the, the loss, um, which manifests itself often as nostalgia for a life that made sense isn't wicked, right. you know, uh, it, is it? I mean, is it bad to think, oh gosh, I wish that I knew who I was and how I'm supposed to function in society and in my family and, um, and in the church. But I think, I think she would say that it probably is wicked for you to not just, you know, not to wonder about that in a deeper theological way. You just go with what, whatever well, everybody's telling you right this second. 
Well, because in this narrative, um, the only people who are nostalgic for the past are white evangelical right. Christians, right. because everyone else up until, I guess, 19, well, we'll start with her, um, her date of 1890, um, lived in fear, abject misery, and horror and terror. That was That's essentially the argument. And so if you buy that... Well, then this will read like a great liberation novel. You know, there's uh, that, of course, of course, the people who um, had power and lived li lives of um, ease and luxury, i.e. white evangelicals, uh, Christians, um, they are now feeling what it felt like for the rest of the world throughout all of human history. I mean, that's that's essentially the argument. And so, you know, that's a very uh, cynical. That's, a, you know, as, as people have said, like, there's there's an appreciation and a gratitude for the fact that we have electricity and running water and garbage trucks, you know, that is lacking in a lot of the current civil discourse. Because, you know, whatever errors of the past existed, they still bequeathed something quite remarkable to us. You know, like the page, the, the patrimony that we've inherited is quite, is quite something. And if you don't believe it, go somewhere else for a little while and come back. And then maybe you would say, well, you know, as for all of the fails, the warts and all of the people that came before us, my great, great grandfather had a lot of blind spots, but he actually uh, didn't spend all of his money and left some of it to me or some of it to the school or, or he, he, um, he seemed to sacrifice for someone other than himself. And that maybe we could at the very least consider that to be a beneficial thing. But but that's that's part of the problem is that the context of all of it, like, I mean, we're not there yet, but like, for instance, the Promise Keepers movement, right? Like one needs to under ask, not simply, can you believe that 500,000 men would go to a conference talking about how to be a better husband and not look at porn, right? I mean, that's like the, like, as if that's a shocking thing. What you should say is, why in the world or what was happening or can you believe that God in his mercy like inspired 500,000 men to consider how to be better husbands and better fathers and have looked the same set of facts and so you know but the problem is <clears throat> if your read is is literally that um, anytime um, there's some sort of well this goes back to the critical theory thing anytime someone prospers or hopes to benefit in any way then it's only a result of taking it from someone else you know this power and oppression model well then any of the sort of quote unquote successes or benefits or um, the value that the quote unquote white evangelicals ever wanted was simply a cynical power play for their own uh, aggrandizement or whatever it had nothing to do couldn't have anything to do with with your genuine christian affection in any way at all because otherwise that the whole thesis would fall and that's just it's just hard to read i mean you know we know a lot of these people or at least i've read a lot of these people and you know i'm sure they're not perfect but i'm they're certainly not the monsters that they're often depicted in this in this book so so i, I agree with you and i think that the context um was lacking but then again that's the argument they'll say well we didn't it's not a book that's supposed to provide context this is just, it's not even an academic book, you know, it's just a, you know, why are you making such a big deal about this? It's like, well, because people are quoting it to me and reading it as if it was uh, well thought out, well argued and kind of the definitive statement on the issue. And it's just not. And mm -hmm. so if we're going to push back on that, of course, then I get gaslit by this. They're like, well, of course you're upset about it because you're implicated because didn't you go to, male. that's right. Didn't you go to, didn't you go to promise keepers, which I did like, didn't you grow up in Baton Rouge? I did like, aren't you a white evangelical? I am. And they're like, well, of course you don't like it. So that's yeah. why, that's why I'm talking with you all today. Cause at the very least I can, um, 
I don't know. I can be. Mid we want. We want to hear your voice, JD. That's right. I'd like to just keep speaking the whole time, and I'll speak over <laughs> you all. That's right. And because apparently that's just what I do. Um, because I didn't know myself until I read this book, and then I've I've been lamenting and repenting ever since. So. Well, there, it really must be that whole power outlook, you know, where it's oppressor and oppressed, and so. Her thesis is that when men are strong, women get stepped on, but that, right. that doesn't necessarily follow. You know, she complained about the masculinization of Christianity, but then she also admitted at one point that even the liberals wanted to masculinize their faith. You know, she said liberals and fundamentalists were focusing on that. You know, and men taking back the church. Well, maybe men were taking back the church because it was just a bunch of old women and they didn't want to be there. And we see that over and over again. Are men going to want to sit in a church that is totally focused on women? No, that, you know, that's not comfortable. I don't even like it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, listen to what she says here in the beginning and see what you think about this. She said, for American Christians, the challenge was to reconcile, she's talking about Teddy Roosevelt, this aggressive new masculinity uh, with, and there's a lot of dead lions and tigers uh, throughout history that would argue that it was not a new mass, a new aggressive yeah. masculinity. Yeah. <laughs> there's a like, lot of, there's a lot back. of. There's a lot of midnight intruders that would beg to argue that uh, men have not somehow just recently become aggressive. Uh, New aggressive masculinity with traditional traditional Christian virtue, which implies that that whatever sort of whatever uh, with its emphasis, she writes on gentility and restraint. Victorian Christianity suddenly seemed insufficiently masculine, virile, aggressive men could hardly be expected to submit themselves to such an emasculating faith. And so in the 1910s, Christian men set out to, quote, remasculize American Christianity, seeking to offset the, quote, womanly virtues that had come to dominate the faith. They insisted that Christianity was also, quote, essentially masculine, militant and warlike. It was time for men to take back the church. That's um. That's back in the early 1900s, but she's that sets the stage. That sets the um, so that's the the beginning of the entire argument is that this was a that what we saw in Trump was a flowering, the full flowering of a century of men attempting to sort of remasculinize the church, which is why the blindness that the church had towards Trump and his moral failings was um, was so evident uh, because the virtues that had been basically uh, developed in evangelical white Christianity were so deeply set that they gave a pass to any of the other Christian virtues. That, that's the argument I mean, right there. I have two, two things, I which I probably can't actually say both of them, but just off the, like, First of all, you know, she she does seem to think that there's some blindness about Mr. Trump's moral failings. Even the people who were excusing his moral failings weren't blind to them because they were excusing them. No one thought Mr. Trump was a, <laughs> a, right. a, a sexually pure person who embodied a virtue. Yeah, he wasn't and, in the ordination process for any church, uh, as far no, as but, I can tell. But also, <laughs> I mean, what she doesn't say here is that yeah, evangelicals went all in on being against Mr. Clinton. You know, they were horrified by Mr. Clinton and they went all in on that. And then watch how the two decades after that played out. And they had no 
I think I think most people calculated the people who went all in for Trump. It was pretty cynical in some cases, like that Jeffrey Sky down south. Um, that like he's going to be our savior. The only way you can say that is when you realize at some deep level that it doesn't matter what you say. Like moral moral virtue is actually not a thing. Nobody cares in the cultural world at all. And you could be, you, you know, b- the blow it up option for Trump came out of, well, the other side is going to just go full in for Hillary Clinton. They want to murder all the babies. It doesn't matter how not racist we are. We voted for Mr. Obama. We tried not being racist. We tried not being misogynistic. And it doesn't matter what we do. You hate us. You you're you're you just hate us. And I think people were like, oh, I don't care then. It, since it doesn't matter, he can talk however he wants. And I'm not saying that that's a good calculation. I'm just saying that that was what I thought the calculation was. She's trying to say that that wasn't the calculation. That's right. That's right. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I went, I, as an Episcopalian, I, I lived in the world of, I guess it's called egalitarianism where men quote unquote treat women equally. And this is my subjective experience, which I'm not going to provide proof of. Well, it doesn't, and it can't be questioned. So you can say whatever you okay, want. Okay, I can so, say whatever that's right. I want. And it's definitely true. So, <laughs> so, so. <laughs> I need you to believe all women right now. And I was not as an, as a, a you know, in court, at Cornell, a, a secular institution where I was involved with university with evangelical white men. I guess patriarchalist, and I guess also racist. <laughs> I was treated as an equal, and I was treated um, with respect and honor, and I was protected in many situations. People, young men would walk home with me to make sure that I got home. People who weren't interested in me, you know, for any just as as a friendly thing, it was I. I was treated so well. I mean, it, and I didn't even know that that was unusual maybe because I had also been on the mission field where um, men and women work together in missionary contexts without having any of this trauma, I guess. So then I go to seminary where the men are supposedly equal and they're not patriarchalist and they love women. They're all feminists. I I have never in my life been so patronized, so talked down to, so surprised <laughs> by the way that men could act than in a, a very egalitarian situation. And so I know as a conservative um, white evangelical woman that I'm not allowed to have my lived experience be on the table, but I, I have a certain bitterness reading this mm. book because she isn't interested in how women are treated when the men are not invited, first of all, to fully participate in the life of the church. And second of all, to be who they really are, to be aggressive in a good way. I, I, I'm offend, I'm, I'm deeply offended by her characterization of what men 
um, any, I'm losing words now. Reading about Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, I think how good it was that he didn't stay a weak, sickly person, but decided to man up. Like how good for his family that he did that, because otherwise he would have been potentially abusive or just not caring. There's so many, there's such a, a huge gradation of what a man, how, fall, how far down a man can fall if he's told to deny what nature gives him in a good way and not indulge it in a bad way. Well, this um, is the difficulty Liza and I get into when we read these books, because uh, I keep explaining them to her. And I'm like, these people, again, I don't know what their marriages are like, but they obviously, they're, they're, they're talking about it as if, as if men and women like actually hate each other. <laughs> like, that's this, that's, which is, of course, the result of the fall, you know, Adam and Eve. I mean, there, we even see in Genesis, the, the fruit are the, um, the beginnings of what I assume was a, uh, well, not assume, we live the results of their extended disagreement, you know, uh, the, this woman that you gave me tricked me, you know, said Adam. And so, and then we're off. And that's been right. the battle of the sexes ever since. I mean, that's even in part of the curse, you know, was that men would, would look for meaning and, and value in their labor and would ultimately die and that women would resent the, the, the power that men would have over them and would be um, subjugated to bearing children. I mean, all of this was a curse. It wasn't a, a, a promise until Christ came and reversed the curse, as it were, and made it a promise. And so that a lot of the, the things that she, she characterizes as, as quote unquote patriarchalism from a Christian standpoint, and she She's ostensibly writing, she's a professor at a Christian college, are gifts of God, you know, uh, fatherhood and motherhood and and uh, men um, laying down their lives and protecting the weak and vulnerable around them. These are not negative qualities. They can be abused and have been, and we're all aware of that, and we fight against that abuse, but that the existence of them is not a problem, and that seems to be one of the points of main contention with with her is that the the existence of masculine virtues are not a problem like the abuse of them are a problem and we have millennia of uh poetry art literature and human experience to look back on to see how those can be abused but that they can also be harnessed for great good is why we are sitting here talking to each other on us on a piece of glass with our uh, computer you know like the fact that we're we're not being bombed right this moment the fact that we're 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 vaccinated i mean the fact that we're we're there's been some incredible creative energies that have come in the proper harnessing of these uh of these masculine and feminine virtues which she seems to think are uh particularly in the case of quote-unquote white evangelical men um all a function of a disordered uh power grab and it's again i mean that's why i'm with you Anne. like i read it and i couldn't help feel uh in many ways um described. Um, I mean, certainly, thank God, not in the specific instances of uh, abuse and failings, but um, but in the broad brush. And, you know, so to the extent that I was offended by it, I think is a fair assessment, because I said, you're, you know, who are you, you, you seem to be thinking about me, and yet you are, you, nothing could be further from from the truth, as far as my 43 years could attest to them. And so, um, 
you know, you're writing for someone that it's like an anthropological survey of like some foreign people that you clearly don't like and you find quite odd and you don't really want to know anything really about who they are you know it's not like hillbilly elegy you know jd vance you know writing about people that he actually knew and loved and could see all of their flaws and warts and you know there's a certain human or like um Friday Night Lights, you know, whoever wrote Friday Night Lights uh, actually knew small town America and didn't hate them, you know, like he didn't excuse them, but he obviously cared something about their humanity. And that is just totally lacking in this book. And then all the people that are picking it up with great gusto are just sharing in that, that contempt. And it's just incredibly distasteful. And, and one of the, one of the 9,000 reasons that I consider getting off Twitter every single day. Um, for that so Linda I mean you were in the air force for goodness sakes I mean what do you think about this toxic masculine Christian virtue I mean uh okay I am wearing pink today because when I read this book I go oh my god I am a man my formative years have made me to be a man to be self-sacrificing to be strong to protect the weak those are all ideals that you know I subscribe to that it's like the Jesus and John Wayne uh, song, which I'd never heard of, you know, and so I was doing some research for today and I looked that up because I was shocked that some commentator said it was a song and I thought, oh, this is going to be really corny. Well, it's not. It's kind of sweet. Okay, I pulled it up. Daddy was a cowboy, hard as a rock. Mama, she was quiet as a prayer. Daddy'd always tell me, son, you got to be tough. Mama'd kiss my cheek and say, play fair. I did my best to make him proud of me, but it's never been an easy place to be. Somewhere between Jesus and John Wayne, a cowboy and a saint crossing the open range. I try to be more like you, Lord, but most days I know I ain't. I'm somewhere between... Jesus and John Wayne. The, the part I like, it says, um, mama's love was tender, daddy's love was strong, but both of them were there to help the weak. They taught me to stand up and fight for what is right, showed me how to turn the other cheek. So I thought, well, I'm sure she used this to, to make fun of evangelicals. And um, yes, I must be a man because it didn't offend me. I, I thought, it, you know, there, that whole idea of strength and being there to, to protect other people, to, to do the right thing, to stand up for what's right. And she criticizes society, but we're coming out of a, a, you know, a century where there were two great wars and you could not turn the other cheek during World War II and expect a good outcome. Yeah, and there's no no discussion of, you know, global communism. There's no discussion mm -hmm. of of the uh, influx into higher education in the early 20s and 30s of um, of outspoken European communists into, uh, I mean, speaking of Colombia, like Colombia is one of the hotbeds of these places. And again, uh, you know, there was an incredibly complicated, I mean, everyone needs to go back and listen to um, Rise of the, Indu the International System by a guy named Thomas Sheehan. And you, 
can Google it. It's uh, iTunes U, and it's um, it's uh, a Stanford University professor. And once you end up, it's basically history of the world, the modern world from 1790 to the present. And once you listen to that, to to say you basically can't say anything. <laughs> was just anything ever again, because it's so complicated and so complex and so um, uh, sort of multivariable that that it's amazing that we're still here, you know? And that, and that all of that, again, the, the, I just keep hearing the critics in my head when I push back at all on this book, they say, well, it you can only do so much in one book. You can only, you know, what do you expect to have all of the context laid out? And it's like, well, no, I don't expect that, but I do expect, at least in my own personal life, when I make such sort of shocking and sort of potentially offensive uh, assertions. Like if I'm going to make something that's potentially offensive, um, then I would at least want to, to back myself up a little bit better than what has happened here. And that's, that's been the problem. And so I, I'm with you, Relinda. I think that, that there's a, a context that, again, I, I don't know, the, the problem I have is that the people who have the context are either going to read this book like I did and find it offensive and dismiss it, or they're going to not read it because they're implicated directly in some cases by it. But then many of the people reading it are not going to have the context and consider this to have been a faithful and fair and balanced, as it were, uh, 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 account and come away with it from it with a, with a I think, you know, not at one sided would be a would be an understatement of what this would be in terms of, of um, a lot of what's just depicted again no one is arguing with the facts of the matter you can go through the list and say such and such pastor did such and such with with this person and stole this money did I mean there's a long you know there's a history of, of wreckage in our Christian church that goes back to you know again the garden I mean no one's arguing this but but the causation does not uh, correlation is not causation you know is one of the fundamental tenets of argumentation and the fact that you can just string these things together and lump them as the white evangelical problem is just well it's frankly it's just laughable and that's what's so embarrassing about this entire discussion that is happening in the broader context is that people who should know better don't seem to be and find it so opportunistic to take a screed like this and use it as a blunt force instrument to sort of push in a narrative that that is much more complicated than you know, white men bad, uh, rest of the world good. I mean, that's essentially, mm -hmm. and and it's just, it's it's. I mean, it's again, and it doesn't. It, it's it's unsurprising that this book has hit a has found an audience at this cultural moment that we're in because it's just simply a, it's the next iteration of uh, Christians pandering to the culture and to the non-Christian sort of zeitgeist and, uh, you know, hoping for more Twitter followers and possibly a byline with the New York Times opinion uh, section. And the New York Times simply exists to like educate the rest of the world about how they should think about themselves. And this book is just a, in a long line of contempt for people that have with great, with obvious failure and, mm -hmm. and blind spots and sin, nevertheless, tried tried to live a christian life in the midst of a of a pagan world and and that's um i will not apologize for for that attempt i can stand as implicated in my own failures and complicity and blind spots and and will continue to work to eradicate them but i'm not going to apologize for for what they were trying to do um and that's what this book wants me to wants to try to make me do 
What I like about the book is that she's, you know, the marketing campaign that, that goes with it is, um, you know, one reason why this book is, is so, you know, Americans, Americans, not even just evangelicals, but Americans love a fad. They love the latest thing. They love celebrities. They, it's, it's peculiar to the American psyche to love the next thing. And I, I love that she's cashing in on the very thing that she's critiquing in the book, evangelicals with their, their stupid celebrities and their stupid fads, but she's creating a phenomenon. It's and and book is doing very well. I love that she, you know, I, I love that. I want to know, I don't know any of these people in this book. Yeah. I know who Billy Graham is, but I want to know who Pat Boone is. Uh, and I was hoping you guys could sit, tell me. Rolanda, you might have a little bit more. Are you saying I'm old enough to well, remember you're slightly Pat older. You're slightly older. Than... <laughs> well. I think that's a, that's a, what, is that a misogynist thing to say? It's <laughs> racist. It's everybody... at least racist. <laughs> because it's a fact that you're just slightly older than I am. Yeah. Uh, well, Who's forgive Pat me. Dude? Forgive like, me, Mother I've said. It's, it's like how Ollie North apparently had a huge impact he was a singer right pat on, boone i mean he does yeah, predate he me a, but and he was kind of like a crossover you know he was a popular like a lauren daigle sing, yeah popular singer but then did gospel and i thought it was interesting that you know when she goes on this tirade against billy graham and how almost like you know he converted Stuart hamblin this party boy cowboy singer who had a radio station and Billy Graham converted him and you know he was well party boy skirt chaser whatever then he became a fully converted Christian he sang gospel music he sang popular music and he had a you know a media empire his his um, radio station was very popular and then there became other celebrity conversions and it's, it's the book made it sound like this was a power grab but i'm reading it thinking wow isn't that cool that this guy who was you know the bad parts of masculinity became a christian and then used you know his platform for good and then other you know other people were no, but see, it wasn't for good because he was he was promoting uh, what Billy Graham would say a quote unquote patriarchal version of Christianity. So there's nothing can nothing can be good from <laughs> these people becoming quote unquote Christians according to this book. Nothing. Well, so you know, whatever you think, whatever you think, about you're wrong. You must yeah. not have read the book clearly enough, and you need to follow Obviously. her on Twitter because you don't seem to get it. And if you don't get it, I've got a couple of other books um, that you could read too because you and if you continue to say this then you're going to be thrown off twitter it's like you you clearly don't understand um but that's the sad part Merlinda. i mean that's how i was with you it's like okay i'm sure the guy who became a christian was not he wasn't jesus you know he's probably like every other christian i know but the fact that like john wayne <laughs> that's right mm -hmm. he probably that's right um uh but it's just it's maddening and sad and and i don't want to live I mean, I'd much rather live in the world where that listens to Pat Boone music than whatever sort of, you know, deep house trance or whatever the other world listens to or whatever, because I, I'm, um, 
it's it's so sad and cynical and seems to be so foreign to actual Christian experience. That's what I kept running through the book too. Is like that we're speaking almost like two different religions here because mm-hmm. I mean again, it's not it's not that I would I keep having to say this. Not that you would excuse any of the actual. Uh, factual um, bad behavior in this book. No one's doing that. But the 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 way that it's being spoken about is if as is it's as if people were somehow expected to not be blind to uh, the lusts of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. That there wasn't uh, that there actually isn't a, a spiritual battle going on, and that the that the devil would target Christian leaders in particular. Um, or, or even allow, uh, hopefully elevate some that would have these faults, that it was a great wound to the body of Christ when each of these happened, as opposed to a, as a, um, a point of um, evidence to, to, to a, a, a final verdict. And that's, that's been the difficult part for me. One thing that, as usual, one of the, the heartbreaks that I have, I'm feeling more and more as I read current books and the internet and everything, is how flat and how stereotyped sex and gender have become you know you see that in the it's it's allowed the transgender movement to come into being because who you are in a in your biological nature is surface it doesn't go all the way to the core of who you are and so you have to kind of perform your gender and sexuality and it in your externals and it doesn't really um, it's not a core issue. You can't really just sort of live and then it'll play out the way that it should if you if you concentrate on knowing Christ. This book can only exist because we already have a very, very flat, pathetic view of sexuality and gender. Um, the fact that she thinks that you that the maleness of Jesus, for instance, can be used as a trope in contrast to John Wayne indicates that she doesn't really know what masculinity and femininity are, which is the way it is. Nobody really knows. You know, one of the things that has to be done, I think, for Christians, if we're going to recover from this, is to think in a more full way about men and women and humanness because over the century it just has bled away the fem the feminization of the world meant that everything became a caricature rather than the real thing and most women i know don't know how to think of themselves they're performing you know they they can adopt different cliches in an effort to cobble together a sense of the self and that that becomes really apparent as you read this book she doesn't she's a she's swallowed that down without criticism Mm, interesting that's a really good point i mean i think that i think that when i read well for instance going back to wild at heart i mean that that came right when i was uh in college so late 90s and you know one of the things that i would want to talk to her about is why do you think you know why do you think there was such a uh, confusion amongst men at that time who were considering that men that masculinity was actually a thing you know i mean so we had to start with some assumptions that there was a difference between men and women which of course is an offensive thing but at the time is okay what 
what does it mean to be a man? You know, what, what is positive about this? And that was 25 years ago now. And to say that the question has become clearer and that we have a better answer to that now is, is laughable. I mean, yeah. now, you can't, now you can't even question uh, what it would look like to be, I mean, in certain circles, um, an actual man as, a, as over against a woman and vice versa, because that's considered to be, um, well, offensive, you know, because there, are, there cannot be any stated or, or uh, discussed differences. And I think that that's, that's what we're looking at, 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 to your point, Anne, is that the, the, that the culture that has produced this book is a further flowering of the problem that actually has been sort of, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, acknowledged in many of the, the villains of this book for a century, you know, mm-hmm. and they, they didn't address it perfectly. And in many cases, they over, overstated the problem and probably mm-hmm. under, overstated the, the cure. And yet, as Christian people, they were recognizing the same problem then that we recognize today, which is that it will continue to be offensive and countercultural to argue that there is a God who has created in his image men and women to be distinct yet uh, complementary and have been gifted with various and different um, uh, gifts and attributes and abilities. And that's an offensive thing to say. And it's, it's, it's not, it wasn't offensive uh, back when people simply had to survive because it was like, one of us has to go kill the bear and cook it. And, and one of us has to raise the children and protect, keep them from dying. And so like, who wants to do this? And it just happened to be the fact that for thousands of years, it sort of fell along uh, biological and sort of gender specific lines. And then that has been thrown into an uproar. And some, you can argue, and we've talked about this in all sorts of places that there's some wonderful benefits to that you know people live past 50 you know that's good i mean people are able to pursue avenues of work and industry that they couldn't have before i mean there's there's a lot of benefits to it but there's that nothing comes without its unintended consequences and we are walking through as the church the same reality of the consequences that the world is it's just some of these consequences from a christian perspective are not positive that's that's what we're arguing and that and that you know the fact that you can now have un, uh, have as many sexual partners as you want without any fear of getting pregnant and then and even disease you know this is is brings with it some unintended difficulties for the christian person that perhaps the world does not see for instance you know i mean the fact that you can create life outside of a uh, a womb uh brings some positives and negatives i mean you just go down the list and so you know, when I read a book like this, I'm saying, you know, that what you're watching is a tragic, you'd like to think, cautionary, lovingly cautionary, hard truth. That's what I'd like it to be. Didn't read like that, but let's just give it the benefit of the doubt. A cautionary, loving, lovingly hard truth about how people can over, uh, sort of overreact to legitimate Christian concerns in a changing cultural landscape. That's what I'd like this book to have been. Uh, I was I was actually reading it with a certain eye towards that. After, but after the first three pages, I was like, okay, this is not going to be uh, well received by anyone that it's purportedly trying to help, uh, myself included, because it is so dripping with contempt and scorn and mockery and slander and and only the most cynical and and callous quote-unquote christian could read this with anything other than than sadness i think and that's again i know i have one critique of it i have one critique because because you know i'd be interested to go through each and we probably should each specific case 
But to argue that somehow it was only the white evangelicals that were somehow against the uh, rise of communism in the world to make to imply that somehow the, the fight against communism was this particularly uh, Christian, militarized, masculine, white Christian idea. I mean, how do you even begin? How do you even begin with something like that? And that's where I keep coming back to um, chapter after chapter. It's like, I'm sure, you know, this this woman, uh, this uh, Kobe Dumay is, I'm sure she's a fine academic and she must have written a PhD at some point that made it through um, uh, some vetting process. And as it was pointed out to me on Twitter, this is not an academic imprint, which of course, I guess, gives you freedom to write like a one of those uh, airport novels, you know, written by one of the uh, Fox and Friends co-hosts, you know, <laughs> well, I haven't bought one of these, but I always see them, you know, and it's some sort of like 18 point font. And that's equivalent to what this book is. And yet people that should know better are, 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 are passing it around as if it was like a, uh, an actual account of the way things, the way things really are. And that's, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's such a caricature of men and society and Christianity and evangelicalism. And at one point I thought she talked about Billy Graham using all these military and athletic metaphors. And I had had a note on my sheet and I go, uh, like the ones in the Bible, you know, she never really admitted that, you know, the Bible is full of military and athletic metaphors. So is that wrong? And she said he was. The Lord out. is literally described as a mighty warrior. Like the yeah. Lord is, I mean, literally. So <laughs> sorry, I didn't interrupt you. Yeah, and then she complained about Billy Graham and that he was working out and, you know, bolstering his masculine credentials. And like this was some freakish thing that he was in the gym and that was obviously so he could be hyper-masculine and militant. And I, I just really wanted to say, uh, do you even lift, sis? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> Only an academic that, you know, sits in their office all day in front of the computer would think that that was an abnormal thing. I think the two, the, I mean, the two points, I mean, I don't know if this will conclude it, but I totally agree with you. Some of the throwaway observations just indicated the problem with the author or her perspective, at least. And one of them was when she she talked about Oliver North so much. And then when he left the public stage, he, he went to a church, right? So that was a bad thing because of course the white man went to a, a church, but he went to a I don't know the quote exactly, but it was mostly a predominantly white, wait for it, Episcopal church. And that was somehow a, a mic drop to the fact that Oliver North was continuing his, his evangelical white patriarchal screed. Now, anyone who knows the Episcopal church knows that whatever it was, it, it was is not white. the bastion. Right. It certainly it was, was white, but so it was certainly white. not the bastion of evangelical uh, no. sort of <laughs> patriarchalism back in the... So I was like, oh, yeah. So he just had to throw in that. And then when she talked about Hillary Clinton uh, was an evangelical, but not the, the right kind of a devout Christian, she said. And I said, okay, again, I'm not questioning anyone's private faith or whatever, but just for the sake of argument, you probably should have qualified that a little bit more too. And so again, and I mean, I think your, your insights on men and women, um, and I think your, the statement you just made earlier about um, 
the setting up the culture for uh, performative gender sexual identity is that is worth an entire another episode if not a book or I mean that's going to be the conversation of our lives essentially mm -hmm. you know the the anthropological question of mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a human male and female in his image is not only under assault but it's um it's under great uh it, it's a great place of of confusion and you know Christian people uh are going to have to think much more deeply about this I mean I was reminded on Twitter the other day, someone sort of mockingly said, all these Christians that are talking about uh, sexual identity in such uh, sort of cautionary ways better be preparing their churches to talk about uh, human identity and gender and sex and adultery and, and, us, and as if we weren't doing that. And right. I just responded and said, well, they, sh they, sh they certainly should be. I mean, because mm -hmm. this is the world that we live in. Well, and they have for, they have for a century, as you said, the evangelical world saw the crisis, maybe didn't articulate it well, didn't know how to respond to it, but saw it coming in a really visceral way and decade by decade had some kind of response, either for good or for ill, where, whereas the culture had none. And so I think that that's really an interesting book. Maybe we should co-author it. And But I, I think in our next episode, I would really like to take on uh, the question of Billy Graham because I think that's really central. I don't know, maybe we can't go chapter by chapter. Maybe we have to just like rove up and down over the book um, saying what we want. But I, 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 I look forward, I hope that we don't exhaust our listener um, with talking about this forever. Thanks for listening to Stand Firm this week. We're going to be looking at Jesus and John Wayne for the next several weeks. As always, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com and join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to Ann Kennedy, J.D. Koch, and Rolinda Greger. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,